Welcome to Esrdaya Illusions. We have a very exciting show. We have Shahid Buttar here, who's challenging Nancy Pelosi up in San Francisco for the 12th District of California for the United States Congress. Uh, Shahid has a uh, really gargantuan task ahead of him, but he's running a campaign that really hits, I think, every note of... Uh, his uh, progressive message and uh it's been really exciting to follow and Chad, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself sure yeah thanks so much for having me on uh, i'm a constitutional lawyer i'm an artist i work at the electronic frontier foundation i trained and taught 20 years ago at stanford law school i've worked both in san francisco and washington dc for the last 20 years to fight for the progressive movement across a range of issues from marriage equality for lgbtq couples and campaign finance reform to peace and justice in the face of our wars for profit, climate justice in the face of the mounting global climate catastrophe, human rights confronting both CIA torture of detainees and the routine torture that we subject prisoners to in our prison slavery industrial complex here in the United States. Um, and my the bulk of my work over the last decade has been particularly focused on surveillance, both at the mass federal level global, I should say, as, as well as at the local level effectuated by local police surveillance. And I organize artists, I have led nonprofits, I do a bunch of different things in the campaign. We're challenging Speaker Pelosi to try to liberate San Francisco's voice in Washington. And I'm happy to talk more about that. So I want to start with the uh, news of the week, which was uh, the DNC summer meetings. I know that uh, your campaign made a lot of headlines for uh, being involved with the attempt to get the DNC to host something that I think a lot of us really want and um, would be really valuable in the national discussion, which is a conversation, a debate on climate change. And yet, for whatever reason, that doesn't seem to be something that the DNC is too terribly interested in. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah. And I can talk a bit from a couple different angles. Uh, the DNC does not seem so interested in having an intersectional debate about climate chaos. And one of the reasons why, I think, is because so many corporate lobbyists dominate the committee. <clears throat> I think it's also a predictable result of the corporate rule to which the Democratic Party has unfortunately been committed over the last 30 years. And that's part of the paradigm that we want to replace and, and upend and shrug off to welcome a real democracy that is responsive to the needs of the American people instead of our corporate overlords. Um, we were very much in the midst of the debate surrounding um, the climate debate and the proposal for it and the DNC's rejection of it. When you spoke of the headlines, we weren't named in most of them, but just, uh, in fact, I don't think the campaign was named in any of them, but on the very first day of the DNC, uh, our team basically forced democracy on the committee by holding open the doors in spite of the DNC's security team that was trying to keep out hundreds of climate activists who basically had a chance to be in the meeting and frankly forced a different result in the uh, resolutions committee process that then the, the, the bulk of the committee two days later rejected even that compromise. I mean, on Thursday, we had gotten the resolutions committee to endorse the idea that candidates would be allowed to appear in other fora against each other to have side debates separate from the formally sanctioned ones. And then the full body shut it down basically to assert corporate control over the process in spite of the campaigns and candidates' wishes to debate these issues. Um, another thing I'd say, in addition to forcing the doors open and getting hundreds of Sunrise Movement and allied activists into the room during the DNC Resolutions Committee meeting, we also let a walkout, uh, as yes, it was two days ago, um, 
to on Saturday, right? Uh, after the full committee had rejected the compromise reached by the resolutions committee, uh, we and allies from the Sunrise Movement, from Democratic Socialists of America and Progressive Democrats of America walked out of the meeting chanting failure of leadership. And I was proud to coin the chant. Uh, I was proud to see it all go viral. I don't particularly care about attribution, but it was a, it was a real moment of seeing the movement uh, visible in a space where we haven't been before. It was yet another reflection of the corporate co-optation of the Democratic Party. And I would say that it was a, uh, a, a resounding clarion call to redouble our commitment to climate justice and the grassroots activism that we'll take to secure it in the face of our fossil fuel industrial complex run amok. And there was a, there was a picture taken, uh, with you, with, um, your team holding out the doors of a room that was uh, far from full. Is that correct? It was actually pretty empty. Yeah, there was a room that could have fit maybe I, I'm, you could probably fit 2000 people in that room. The DNC had something like 50 to maybe 75. They claimed the room was full. Uh, we forced the doors open. Another 250 people came in. It was still largely empty and you could have fit another, you know, five times that number inside. But it, it just reflected the, the committees. I'll put it this way. I'm fine if the Democratic Party wants to practice effectively autocracy within itself, but it shouldn't call itself the Democratic Party in that case. Like, if they're going right. to act like that, they should at least rebrand and call themselves the Arbitrary Party or the Corporate Party or the Wall Street Party or something more reflective of what the party is actually about, rather than laying a false claim to a principle that the organization in practice seems to care nothing about. Yeah, I was struck with that image. It kind of reminded me of how... Uh if you've seen Titanic, the, uh, the half filled lifeboats just flying over as people saying, Oh, they're full. They're full. You know, this room's full. Who cares about saving the planet? This is, uh, our agenda, our message. And, uh, you know, if you want democracy, you can go, uh, look for it somewhere else. I think that's just totally ridiculous. But I mean, when it comes to campaigns like yours, you really do have to kind of look outside the standard, uh, you know, the, the mainstream media is not, giving you guys much attention or it, I mean, do you get even any attention at all with them? I mean, they, they've, they've got these stock filled newsrooms. San Francisco is such a big media market. It, uh, in some ways it surprises me that there's, um, that they wouldn't want to catch on to a, a lightning rod campaign such as yours. And then in, in some ways it makes perfect sense. Yeah. I'd, I'd say both. I mean, I see media outlets that are receptive to, um, uh, audiences that, tend to the left have certainly been very uh, receptive to us. For instance, we've been profiled by Jacobin. We've been profiled by Jewish Currents, Current Affairs, um, Salon, Slate, uh, San Francisco Chronicle, Mission Local, Broadcast Stewart. Out, and the, but just to press back on the premise of your question, the corporate media are also, frankly, uh, heeding our campaign. We've been quoted, not profiled, but quoted on the issues particularly impeachment and the presidential cycle in The Hill, a print publication that covers Congress. We've been quoted right. in The Washington Post by The New York Times. Uh, and I'm, you know, having been as an issue advocate in my work over the last 20 years, also quoted by those very same outlets in The Guardian, The Intercept, and like, you know, you name it. Uh, I'm very confident that our campaign will continue to punch above its weight, influence both the national policy conversation, and also continue to expose the... Uh, ineffectiveness at best and complicity at worst of the corporate democratic party and the excesses of this criminal administration that is hurtling our country either off a climate cliff or into the gaping maw of fascism, if not both. And that's why I'm here because neither of those 
neither climate chaos nor fascism are acceptable, and neither the Democratic Party's fecklessness or its potential complicity are acceptable. And I'm here as an ally of the future to defend it from the past. And, you know, frankly, the the uh, vagaries of the corporate Democratic Party are something I expect. The, you know, relative uh, deference of the corporate mainstream media to it is something I expect. And, you know, we're, we're working on the ground and we're working through the outlets we have available, which are, you know, frankly, more than we had last year uh, in the race that I ran in 2018. And, uh, and, you know, I can see the results. I mean, our campaign in 2020 is, is moving about five times faster <laughs> the campaign that we ran last year, which got more primary votes from the left against Pelosi than anyone in a decade. And we did that in three months without any media attention. We're getting a ton of media attention now. We still have a year left to go in the race. We're doing, you know, nearly daily mobilizations. We had over a dozen volunteers with us on, uh, at Bernie Sanders rally in San Francisco a few days ago. You know, we're, uh, we've got signs up all over the city. It's, I, I feel very confident about the race. And in spite of the optics of challenging a political behemoth, I have a great deal of confidence in my neighbors. And it seems to be reflected every day. You know, we're getting a ton of support, not just from media sources, but from donors too. You know, our fundraising numbers um, are really blowing out our campaigns from last year. They're blowing away our projections. You know, we're well ahead of ourselves. Um, and we're on track very much to be able to build a campaign to mount the citywide uh, effort that we'll need to liberate our city's voice. So there's this one dynamic that I've been thinking about a lot lately as it relates to, uh, you know, what what wins elections, because you hear uh, you hear, especially with primaries, that turning out your base is the way to win. But then also perhaps contrasting with that is the idea of uh, specifically for the Democrats where that energy lies. And there's no question that uh, progressive causes have, uh, you know, really the the bulk of the, however permutable a, uh, the concept of energy is to begin with. But for, for, the, for the people at the top of the Democratic Party who are really often seen to be stifling back all of this energy, it seems as though that, that, that recipe... Uh, the formula contrasts with the idea that these energetic people are going to be the ones who are going to take the time out of their busy days, especially on a primary to show up to a poll and actually vote for somebody. I think this was a horrible miscalculation of the Clinton campaign in 2016, that people were actually going to go out of their way to, uh, you know, take, take time off work, take time off from their kids or whatnot to show up to a poll and having, all this grassroots support, I just wondered if you could comment on the, the, just the contrast between party yeah. energy, progressive base, and then just the way that they're handling all of that. Yeah, there is a war going on within the Democratic Party for the control of the opposition to a criminal president. And it can either come from Wall Street, which proved its inability to challenge right-wing populism in 2016 in no uncertain terms, or it can move with the largest generational voting bloc that is already dominating American politics while yesterday's political apparatus, you know, is sort of waking up to the new reality. But the, the progressive sensibility, the radical sensibility, I dare say, of the millennial generation, which was, it's predictable given the ex, uh, experience that people endured during the 2008 financial crisis when President Obama, as a, as a corporate Democrat, I'm sad to say it, uh, chose to bail out banks instead of renters and students. And when 
Senator Joe Biden engineered the attack on student interest to ensure that students would never be able to, for instance, seek bankruptcy protection from overwhelming student debt loads. What that effectively did was force an entire generation to the left because they recognized that the corporate Democratic Party was hostile to their interests. And now that generation has matured. And I, I often reflect upon the era right around 2011 when the Occupy movement was very active. I was very active in the Occupy movement. I visited about 20 different sites because the national nonprofit that I led at the time, <clears throat> then it was called the Bill of Rights Defense Committee. It's since been rebranded after a merger as Defending Rights and Dissent. And I continue to serve on the board of that organization. But when I was running the Bill of Rights Defense Committee, uh, which was founded to fight the Patriot Act, it just so happened that the fall that Occupy went off was the 10-year anniversary of the Patriot Act. So I was on a national speaking tour that fall. And so I got to see nearly two dozen different Occupy sites. I got to be there the day that Occupy St. Louis, the city where I grew up in, the day it was started in the rain in Keener Plaza. It was an incredibly poignant moment for me personally, uh, having been on the road to all these different uh, places, seeing the movement flex. And people thought at the time, the mainstream media, and the narrative you might have heard, is that the Occupy movement was confused and it was unsuccessful. A couple of things just to note there. First, the only reason we didn't continue occupying everywhere was because the Obama administration orchestrated with the FBI and local law enforcement around the country a blatant attack on our First Amendment rights, not just our rights to speech or our rights to assembly or our rights to petition the government for the redress of our grievances, but all of them. Uh, and it did so in a way that might have squelched the appearance of the movement, but it just pushed it underwater. And like an iceberg, you know, there might have been the piece that people saw above the waterline. But, you know, Bernie 2016 and the remarkable showing that he made was a further example of our movement's uh, durability and increasing cultural force. Representative Ocasio-Cortez in 2018 was another. You know, if, Journey, if Bernie's campaign in 2016 was the jab, you know, Ocasio-Cortez landed the hook, and I am throwing an uppercut at the corporate establishment. And if we connect, we can end the bipartisan complicity in corporate rule that has, frankly, contrived climate chaos, that has contrived mass surveillance, that has contrived a prison slavery industrial complex under our feet, an ongoing human rights violations engine in which we are all unfortunately complicit because of the co-optation of our tax dollars. Uh, you know, I'm aghast at an extractive pharmaceutical medical complex that uses, that treats sick people as opportunities to extract economic rent to fill the pockets of executives and shareholders of private corporations. You know, our, in so many different arenas from our, our climate and energy policy to our foreign policy, uh, to our domestic industrial policy, you could not design dumber paradigms if we tried. I mean, in the only explanation for our you know, corporate industrial agricultural system, for instance, or our corporate for-profit predatory healthcare system, uh, the only explanation for the arrangement we have accepted in these arenas is if we are more committed to the accretion of capital than we are to the rights of human beings. That is what capitalism means. It is the rule by capital of people. And I'm not willing to accept it, and neither should anyone else. The millennial generation is over it. And, you know, the old folks who got us here, and I don't mean to, I'm not castigating people who are older, I just mean to say the old paradigm that we are shrugging off. The folks who delivered us here, they don't get it yet. And what you are describing is a party leadership that frankly is out of touch and doesn't understand that the rug is being pulled out from underneath it. And here's the point, I would say at root, the simplest way to put this is that the Democratic Party leadership is not interested in winning elections 
or seeking power uh, for the people. The Democratic Party leadership, including the Speaker of the House, unfortunately, is most invested in their own careers. And, and the rest of us need to shrug off the yoke of their careers to seek what is best for we, the people of the United States. So you spend a lot of time talking with Nancy Pelosi's constituents, obviously, running for her seat. How do you think, I keep thinking to your, your background uh, in civil rights, uh, fighting for against all of those national security, uh, the data mining, all of that stuff that really you don't hear too much about in the news. And that's not really for a lack of it being an important issue. I wanted to talk about maybe the trans- transformation of of San Francisco in the, the Silicon Valley boom. It's not, it, it's a, as a city, it's this major, major tech hub now. And it's a great, there's so much power centralized there that, um, so many of San Francisco's, uh, constituents really don't get to, uh, share in that. And I, I want to get your thoughts on, on how San Francisco reacts on the ground first to, uh, I, the tech industry and then, on a broader scale, just uh, Pelosi herself as a as a figure of power as well as Speaker of the House. So I, I might answer the second part of that and try to back into the first. So I can speak most clearly to how my neighbors respond to the Speaker and how they respond to me. I'll, I'll try to weave in the tech industry there after hitting that because I think that will expose some threads we can pull on to you know at least start answering that further question, which is a tangle because it there are a lot of threads uh, that are weave there. Yep. But just starting at maybe where I can most reliably – San Francisco's over Speaker Pelosi. I discover it every day. Every crowd we're in, you know, people are thrilled that there is an alternative. She has been this city's voice for 30 years. And while there was a time when she went to bat for some progressive interests, like she, for instance, helped found the Progressive Caucus, which I appreciate and applaud. She helped establish federal funding for AIDS research at a time that it was controversial and critical for the interests of the city. And I value and I appreciate that legacy. Particularly since becoming the speaker under the Bush administration, however, she has tacked very, very dramatically to the right. And I want to just unpack a few examples of that. And these are examples known to the city that I think is one of the reasons why, again, it, wherever I go, uh, I'm, I'm, I wouldn't say mobbed exactly, but I can't walk down the street anymore in pretty much any neighborhood in San Francisco without someone you know, running over to me and being like, Oh my God, I'm so excited for your campaign. I hope you win. How can I help? You know, I get that just walking down to the bus stop now. Um, And I would say further beyond that online, I see the same demonstration of interest. My, the, well, let's just start why San Francisco's over Pelosi, you know, from people who were here, who were with me organizing protests and marches and demonstrations opposing Bush's wars at the same time, while our city's voice in Washington was voting to fund them. You know, we here in San Francisco have long been committed to human rights. The United Nations was founded in this city. And the voice of our city in Washington helped sweep CIA torture under the rug when she was briefed into it in 2006, instead of raising an alarm as she was committed to by international law, as her partisan interest would suggest, as her constituents would have demanded had we known the information that she knew. And the idea that she is willing to not only defer to, but help entrench executive secrecy at a time of rising authoritarianism, I, as a Muslim immigrant constitutional lawyer at the time, it was very hard to escape the emergence of fascism. It has been obvious to me in the United States for two decades. It's a big part of why I've dedicated my career in the way I have to defending human rights and working to expand them. 
uh, at a particular time when Speaker Pelosi was abdicating the need to defend human rights while they have been under a sustained attack in the United States for the tw- last 20 years. You know, most recently, she gave the Trump administration a criminal president $4.5 billion to, to fund concentration camps on our nation's borders that have no legal mandate. We don't even have the legal authority to detain asylees, let alone en masse, let alone in conditions that violate international legal commitments that we fought a world war to establish in the first place. And the abdication of that legacy, the violation of principles that millions of Americans fought and died for, is, offends me, frankly, as an immigrant. I didn't, my family did not move halfway around the world so that in my generation I could watch our own democratically elected leaders shred the Constitution with the active participation of the opposition party. And I wish I could say that it was just a Republican endeavor in which Democrats were not complicit. But to whatever extent that might have been true during the Bush administration, the Obama administration proved that Democrats can't be trusted with the Constitution, which is another reason why I'm challenging their leader, because as a Democrat running from the left aligned with Bernie, I am much more committed to the Constitution than I am to any party. I'm deeply committed to freedom of conscience. And that's a piece about the mass surveillance regime when you ask about how San Francisco responds to us and Speaker Pelosi. San Francisco uh, has changed a lot, and many of the new entrants to the city do work in technology. They, in particular, understand how the Internet has been co-opted as a tool for global surveillance. They understand how the internet has been co-opted by corporate interests, which is to say they understand how the liberatory apparatus uh, that some of the early pioneers uh, built. I've worked for the last five years at the Electronic Frontier Foundation, which is the leading digital civil liberties organization in the world. uh, And we fight to keep the internet free at a time when increasing corporate control has frankly restricted user choice at a time when government surveillance has narrowed the opportunities for privacy and anonymous dissent at a time when Uh, The government is also attacking the sort of free speech levers through the corporate platforms. We could chase a rabbit about Communications and Decency Act, uh, Section 230, if you like. But the the point here is that San Francisco is sophisticated, and it knows that our voice has been, unfortunately, uh, sold to the highest bidder. Speaker Pelosi's largest contributions uh, come from the oil and gas industry. They come from pharmaceutical companies and health insurance companies. Those are not industries that are terribly present here. Uh, and, and the idea that she is serving those corporate interests instead of the interests of a city that, and let's just be clear, I want to lay this out in no uncertain terms. San Francisco is a <clears throat> tech hub that is represented by a voice in Washington that has attacked internet rights. Uh, San Francisco is a home of the peace and justice community. You know, one of the, the very central hubs in the movement to stop the war in Vietnam a generation ago. And we are represented by a voice in Washington that is funding wars from Bush's invasion of Iraq to Trump's proposed right-wing resource extraction coup in Venezuela. Uh, We are a city that has long been committed to the rights of our neighbors and the inclusion of people of all walks of life. And, you know, I was fighting for marriage equality for LGBT couples in the courts in 2004 as a cis-hetero-Muslim civil rights lawyer because I understand intersectionality a decade before Speaker Pelosi showed up to respect the rights of my neighbors. And she did that on the eve of a decision by a right-wing Supreme Court. Frankly, after the fact, when her support would have been helpful, I am not a figure that you will need to drag kicking and screaming to respect the rights of my neighbors. I've been fighting for the rights of my neighbors my entire career. It's all I've done. And that's why I'm running for Congress, to continue that commitment. And San Franciscans respond to that. Uh, San Franciscans across all walks of life, the folks who've been here for a long time, who maybe were organizing against uh, the war in Vietnam and the war in Iraq, uh, people who've been here more recently, whose political consciousness might be 
defined very much by a criminal administration. I should press on that also. One of the things that San Franciscans, and in fact, people all over the country have been responding to, is Speaker Pelosi's unfortunate abdication of the constitutional responsibility to impeach our kleptocrat in chief. And I've been drawing blood on impeachment. I've been drawing blood on Pelosi's commitment to corporate extractive health care instead of the public health uh, opportunities to expand human rights. I've been drawing blood on Speaker Pelosi's deference to fossil fuel industries and derision. Uh, you know, she has derided the Green New Deal as the Green New Dream. And yeah, San Franciscans aren't down with any of that. Uh, and, and maybe the last piece I'll say here is as you talk about the transition in our city, it has also trended younger. And the younger folks who've come to the city, even though many of them are upwardly mobile, they might be highly resourced, they're sophisticated and they're not beholden to an established power structure. And that's exactly why I think uh, across all sectors of the city, from folks who've been here for decades to folks who are new, uh, as I'm meeting people at events, as I'm meeting people on the street, as our uh, you know, social media uh, profiles continue to grow dramatically, I am seeing a great deal of receptivity to a voice that I think our city recognizes is long overdue. We have, we have wanted, I think, for much longer than my campaign to be represented by a voice that would actually represent our city and our values and, and frankly, our character. Uh, we could chase that rabbit, too. I mean, I think there's unique ways in which my character is also appreciated in the city as someone who's not only a lawyer, who's been fighting for our rights in the policy apparatus and in the courts, but also as a direct action activist, as an artist, as an organizer of artists, as an organizer of direct action. You know, I have a, an approach to politics that is not only intersectional, but also interdisciplinary. And I think that's a thing also that resonates with our city's character beyond the resonance of my work with our city's values. Well, I think your approach is also shining a light on some uh, realities of politics or the, the structure of government that I think some people take for granted, particularly with the courts. You've pointed out in the past that uh, a lot of the, the victories that we've seen against the Trump administration in the courts, while they're uh, certainly uh, you know something to celebrate, the fact remains that President Trump is currently and Mitch McConnell are stacking pretty much all elements of the judiciary from the, the district courts to the uh, appellate courts with tons of conservative justices, right leaning people who really don't care about civil rights. And these these victories that we're celebrating right now, uh, that that's really a, a slippery slope down the future. We can't advocate the role of the legislative branch in uh, achieving these victories. And that's kind of, you know, where, where a lot of the frustration surrounding the stagnant uh, impeachment efforts uh, lies, definitely. Absolutely. I mean, and I, I would hit this in two different dimensions. You started by mentioning the Trump administration stacking of our federal courts. And that's an issue that's mattered to me a lot for a long time. So 20 years ago, I was in law school when the Supreme Court decided the Bush versus Gore decision. And it alarmed me. It was my first semester in studying what passes for law in this country. And I witnessed its blatant uh, subjugation, perhaps, by politics. And frankly, the Supreme Court hasn't been legitimately comp uh, composed since because that was there was a Yale law professor, Bruce Ackerman, who wrote a uh, very powerful article I'd invite anyone to read describing the court packing itself. And that's exactly what it did. When the Supreme Court chose the president, it introduced a circularity. Basically, it chose its own composition. Rehnquist indirectly chose his own clerk as his successor. That's Chief Justice John Roberts. It's incredibly illegitimate. 
um, and we should recognize it as such. So for three years in the mid-2000s, from 2005 to 2008, I served on the senior national staff of the American Constitution Society for Law and Policy, which was founded in the wake of the Bush versus Gore decision to try to restore balance to the federal judiciary. And so we spent those three years, among other things, building a pipeline of progressive jurists, nominees who had the background, who had the experience, who had the value orientation to be appointed to the bench after we got a Democratic president in office. And when President Obama came to, to Washington, we were super excited. One of our, you know, the, the executive director of our organization was hired into the White House and President Obama proceeded to keep appointing prosecutors. And, you know, he didn't, he didn't appoint public interest advocates. He didn't appoint public defenders. He didn't appoint visionary legal academics. He appointed prosecutors to the bench. And they were diverse prosecutors. And Justice Sotomayor is a diverse prosecutor. And, you know, she's frankly been a reliable, you know, center left vote. But there hasn't been a progressive legal visionary on the court since Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And, and even at the lower courts, President Obama abdicated the opportunity uh, to respond in kind to the Reagan and the Trump and the Bush administration's attack on the independence of the judiciary. Our judiciary has been thoroughly hollowed out, particularly because when Clinton and Obama had a chance to respond in kind, they didn't appoint liberatory judges. They appointed veterans of the prison industrial slavery complex who maybe themselves were brown-skinned and theoretically would have a different orientation to the law. So I just want to point out that the courts have been thoroughly co-opted. That's one reason why you know I have chosen in my career to work primarily through the policy arena. You know, I, I did litigation for only a handful of years when I first came out of law school. That was the marriage equality case in New York when I represented the mayor of New Paltz. That was our successful defense of uh, Representative Shays and Meehan when we uh, won Shays versus FEC before the D.C. Circuit. Um, but the, most of my career, I have avoided the courts, except as a defendant uh, you know, in direct action uh, uh, arrests, because I recognize the courts are co-opted. And you know, I see organizations like the ACLU, whose work I admire, respect, appreciate, and support, I see them hurl resources down the black hole abyss of the court system. And as long as Kavanaugh is on the Supreme Court, we know where the appeals go. I fought the Kavanaugh nomination in 2006 to the D.C. Circuit. I have watched the courts abandon us because the right wing has co-opted them and corporate Democrats weren't willing to respond in kind. And so in that context, the need for the legislative branch to be constitutionally thoughtful becomes all the more important I want to tell a quick story here that describes and reveals how thoroughly, I was going to say useless, which is maybe an overstatement, but unfortunately <laughs> weak Congress has been as its constitutional authority has been consumed by an executive branch that continues to aggrandize itself at the cost of rights and liberties. 2013, Senator Ron Wyden uh, from Oregon asks the then director of national intelligence, James Clapper, in an open hearing of the Senate Intelligence Committee, if the NSA is monitoring millions of Americans. And James Clapper, the Obama director of national intelligence, says no, not wittingly. And after Snowden's revelations prove that to be a bald-faced lie under oath about a matter of grave constitutional importance before the people's representatives, after that was exposed, James Clapper described his own answer in that hearing as, this is a direct quote, too cute by half. I asked James Clapper at the end of a hearing in which he testified two years later in the Senate how he justified never facing a charge for perjury despite lying to the people's representatives under oath about a matter of grave constitutional importance when, just to contrast, 
a couple of months before I asked the question, a man by the name of Eric Garner was choked to death in the street in New York City without a charge, without a trial, on the mere suspicion that he was committing so grave a crime as selling cigarettes without a license. And when we have powerless people who are persecuted relentlessly to the point of extrajudicial assassination for trivial offenses, while powerful people can commit <clears throat> severe offenses on the public record against not just one American, but all of us at once and be rewarded with an entourage and a pension. I was just asking the question how he justified that, and they arrested me for asking the question. That, to me, reveals how bent what we call justice in this country is. And it's another reason why, as a lawyer who is an immigrant, I can't justify practicing law in a court system that has so little connection to anything resembling justice. I could go on about legal realism and its replacement by legal formalism and the vacuousness of the contemporary mode of legal interpretation. And, and, and that's a thing I'd love to do in the fullness of time in Congress. But I, I think we, among other things, need to restore a constitutional conscience for Congress. That is exactly what I aim to be. It's what I'm auditioning for is that role. Uh, we need to restore order to the federal judiciary. That's going to have to move particularly through the Senate. Um, and I would say that above all else, we have to check and balance the executive branch aggressively. And maybe just one thing I'll just throw out there. I think it's important that we have members of Congress who are friends to whistleblowers, uh, like Senator Mike Gravel was, um, members of Congress who are willing to initiate investigations, like Senator Frank Church or Representative Otis Pike from another generation who revealed uh, the, you know, the 50-year history of the FBI, for instance, in relentlessly persecuting Americans of conscience for pursuing uh, different social movements. These are histories that we have lost, their sensibilities that are not present in a Congress built, composed of careerists. And, and I propose that our city can be represented by one of us uh, in, instead of uh, someone who's complicit in, in aggrandizing the executive branch. I, I agree completely about uh, whistleblowers, especially uh, as we speak, Chelsea Manning is, is, they're continuing to persecute her for refusing to speak to a grand jury about Julian Assange. Uh, her judge has uh, imposed some sort of ridiculous uh, daily fine for her refusal to cooperate. It's hundreds of thousands of dollars. And uh, it to see her targeted after all she's been through, uh, it, it would be nice if we had uh, advocates up in uh, Washington who are willing to to speak out for somebody who really did expose a lot of the horrors of the uh, Bush administration that that we we seem to forget. And you get the Democrats nowadays who say, "Oh, I miss George Bush." Well, I don't miss him one bit, uh, which isn't to say that I don't uh, loathe Trump with every fiber of my being. But it's just, I, I think we need you. You mentioned. Uh, Clapper, which is a good point, because he's this kind of guy who's since kind of gone on to he's got a CNN contract. He's viewed as some kind of like figure of the resistance. And you say, well, wait a minute. This guy lied about surveillance. This is ridiculous. I think we need a, a, a public consciousness of this, too, to try and hold these people accountable. Absolutely. And it's not just surveillance he lied about. I mean, we should be clear here. You right. know, people could yep. hear the word surveillance and think they're talking about a, a security measure instead of what it actually is. What, what Snowden blowed the whistle on was mass corporate industrial corruption that was forecast by President Eisenhower as an attack on our own democracy by our own military intertwined with corporations. He called it a military industrial complex. In one of his speeches, he called it a military industrial congressional complex and the complicity of Congress 
in that complex is continuing assault on the rights of the American people uh, is, is a perfect example. Mass surveillance is not a security measure. Mass surveillance is an attack on freedom of conscience. People don't understand that what surveillance ultimately represents is the death of a democracy because, and I'll, I'll, I'll do this in a different way. People think, for instance, that the First Amendment includes only the right to speech. And, and to be clear, there's five discrete rights, but there's a reciprocal sixth. There's the right to, to speak, uh, to articulate your beliefs. There's the right to have your beliefs in the first place. That's the freedom of conscience. Um, there's the right to the press, dissemination, the right to assembly, and to petition. Um, all of these five intersecting rights have been described by Bert Newborn, a professor at NYU Law School, as Madison's music. And I'm very committed to Madison's music. There's a reciprocal right to the right to speech, which is the right to hear from anyone, including people who silence themselves when they know they're being watched. That is why surveillance doesn't offend only privacy. Surveillance offends speech. It suppresses dissent. It kills democracy. It is an authoritarian measure. What Clapper lied about was the emergence of authoritarianism in the United States with the support of a democratic president. And, you know, to his credit, President Obama ended the CIA torture program. And to his vast discredit, he precluded accountability. And this might be controversial, but it's one thing to torture people. And Bush did that. No one was ever held accountable. And that is bad. I think it is even worse to say that it's okay. And that's what President Obama did. It was under the Obama administration that we effectively lost the principles we established in the Second World War that held, for instance, that torture is a human rights abuse, period. Full stop, no justification, doesn't matter who told you you could do it, doesn't matter who gave you orders, doesn't matter if you thought there was an emergency. If you violate human rights commitments, we prosecuted a case at Nuremberg. We sent a Supreme Court justice to prosecute the case that established strict liability for torture, a principle that we then violated 60 years later and for which no one's ever been held responsible. And I think that is absolutely unacceptable. It doesn't it, – and and – Frankly, let's fast forward the tape. Now we're under the Trump administration. I have no confidence that the CIA isn't torturing people now, right? We know that the concentration yeah, exactly. camps are there. I mean, the worst excesses of this administration, we don't even know what they are yet. They might take another decade to come out. It might take a decade, particularly because it'll take that long to get members of Congress inclined to investigate instead of defer, like Speaker Pelosi. And I'm not willing to defer. I'm not willing to defer to the Trump administration, and I'm not willing to defer to her. These principles are too important. And I think that San Francisco knows that. I know that the millennial generation knows that. And I think that as the rest of the United States comes to understand that, we will see ourselves witnessing a dramatic transformation of our political system as the careerists who've been complicit in corporate rule are replaced by the likes of me, people who have been fighting for the rights of our neighbors, people who are willing to defend the future, people who are willing to seek an expansive vision of human rights that includes, for instance, healthcare, housing, and food, instead of letting the executive branch uh, attain these powers like surveillance, detention, and torture that place any of us, and particularly communities of color and low-income communities, at grave and increasing risk. I think it's important to hear you point out a lot of these uh, issues that went on during the Obama administration. It's something that the uh, second round of presidential debates uh, in July tended to focus on. And then in the aftermath of that, we saw in uh, really from the, the corporate media, this big think question of whether it's wise to, to go and critique Obama's record. And I'm sitting there thinking to myself, 
this argument is one of the least democratic things I've ever heard. The idea that we, we should, uh, you know, I, I have affection for Obama. I think a lot of us, most of us do uh, on the left. But this was not a perfect presidency by any any mark. And I don't see how you can uh, hope to not even just from the presidential standpoint, but congressional uh, all the way down to local. I don't see how you can uh, ad- advance progressive causes without at least acknowledging the areas in which they went wrong, which they so clearly did. And you've uh, described just a few of them. There's no question we have to have a robust accounting of the past to make sure that the future does not repeat its errors. I'd say the same thing about the 2016 election. You know, people say sometimes that relitigating the Clinton versus Sanders, uh, you know, battle is unhelpful. But like we need to remember that Bernie had the biggest crowds. He had the most support. He was the most poised to beat Trump then. And he remains it now, particularly because let's just contrast him with Senator Biden. You know, it's another reason why examining the Obama administration is important, especially in the context of Senator Biden's aspirations to effectively continue the, the Obama administration, exactly, which, de- yeah. which deferred to police violence, which deferred to fossil fuel extraction, which deferred to effectively you know new forms of human rights abuses in the form of CIA flying remote, re- re- remotely controlled robots that would vaporize even Americans and their kids based on speech crimes that happened. While those people were seeking in our supposedly unbiased federal courts the opportunity to vindicate their innocence, um, you know, we saw the Obama administration bail out banks and abandon students. I mean, let's just be clear here, prey on students to entrench banks and support industrial interests at the cost of the American people. Uh, it was far from a perfect presidency. The only reason I think people reflect on it uh, with some degree of nostalgia is frankly because the ones that that preceded and followed it are so unapologetically heinous. I mean, the Bush administration and the Trump administration uh, have no place in a civilized society. We should all be ashamed, frankly, that we've ever been led by figures the likes of them. And, and President Obama, to his credit, was a, uh, a sane person, an intelligent person, someone who took his job seriously. I mean, those are the least of the things we should expect, right? Um, but I'll just, you know, my, my, my principal reflection on the Obama administration would focus on racial profiling and the emergence. And I'll contrast this. I heard him speak in 2007 and he, what he said actually had a very profound impact on me. And I agree with him very deeply. He said, all change comes from the group, from the roots, from the ground, from beneath that. And he told the story. It's a, a famous one, somewhat apocryphal, but when president, uh, Roosevelt, FDR met with the labor leader, the black labor leader, A. Philip Randolph, uh, about a proposed labor reform. And FDR says to A. Philip Randolph, I agree with you. Now make me do it. And he understood, Obama suggested that he understood the proper relationship between institutional power and grassroots power, which is we in the grassroots clamor and we, we create political cover for and we force institutional actors to move. And when he went in office, a lot of us took him at his word. That's why we occupied cities across the country, to give him cover and to make him move. And he didn't move. He stayed with the banks. He stood against those of us who followed his recommendation. The Ferguson uprising is a perfect example. It was people who spoke out. And there it wasn't necessarily in response to his invitation. It was just because that authoritarianism revealed itself in very stark terms in St. Louis, as it has in cities across the United States where unarmed people continue to be shot dead by our public safety officials. Um, and, and President Obama's response to the Ferguson uprising was not to support the End Racial Profiling Act, which I'd been working on for almost a decade by that point, 
which has still never seen the light of day in Congress since. President Obama's response to the Ferguson uprising was to take the cop who profiled his friend, Professor Henry Louis Gates in Cambridge, and buy the guy a beer. He never even apologized. (laughs) There was never any policy reform responding to the Ferguson uprising. My campaign developed a 30-point, rigorous, expansive, visionary platform to help restore legitimacy to our criminal injustice system. And, and the reason we had to do it, frankly, is because Democrats have been entirely complicit in the war on drugs, in the war on terror, in the war on immigrants, and the war on the poor. Um, yeah, I, God, don't get me started. I guess you have gotten me started about the Obama administration. <laughs> I, I witnessed the best minds of my generation co-opted by the Obama administration. And maybe I'll step back in terms of my own political uh, valence at the moment. You know, a lot of people in my generation, Generation X, went along to get along because when we were coming up, the boomers held the reins and, and I never went along. You know, I was always willing to sacrifice whatever, you know, prestige or institutional opportunities came with standing for principle. And, and the thing that's alarming to me and kind of amazing, I'm, I'm very grateful that through a course of events that I never could have predicted, there is now an entire generation of people who see me as their ally, who's been working for them when they were still kids. And that's why I'm going to win this race. Uh, that's why Congress is going to be completely transformed within the next five years. And it's why I think both corporate Democrats and fascist Republicans will find themselves in the history books instead of in Congress by the time we are done. Yeah, I've, I've found myself really, really impressed with your uh, resume, your longstanding track record of this stuff and just the 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 willingness that you have to you know, not not rail against the uh, Obama administration just 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 to do it, but with purpose saying, you know, here here are the ways in which we can move the ball forward, which we need to do. The status quo got us Trump. It's not going to get Democrats back the White House. But uh, one thing that I really wanted to ask you about, and I know that um, you have a lot of uh, uh, campaigning that you have to get on with, but I, I think it's an important part of your resume is the fact and and you listed on your uh campaign website you uh have a lot of experience performing as a dj which i think is really uh you know it's not something that people would instantly link with politics and entertainment but we've seen that kind of uh especially in the way in which podcasts have have really launched uh as a as a viable platform for political discussions with with younger people and a new generation we like a certain degree of authenticity and that's something that you can provide. And not only, not only that, but as a DJ, you have just so much countless important experience in not only bringing your own unique spin to the table for people to appreciate, but you also just, you know how to entertain a, a crowd and get them to, to hear what you have to say, especially performing in venues where people may not have been familiar with, with what you've done before. I think that's, that's really important. I appreciate that. Yeah, I would say before I was a DJ, I was a poet. I mean, I came up as an MC and a spoken word artist in Chicago in the 90s when house music was being born, which is why I'm a househead. And my sort of lyrical sensibility as an MC tends more towards house music than hip hop traditionally. And that's kind of reflected in my music. But a couple things to note there, and I appreciate you raising the point. Um, Politics is to some extent about principle. And that's certainly what brings me to it. To some extent, it's about power. And I think that's what brings Speaker Pelosi to it. It is also, politics is also about performance. And that's what brings President Trump to office, right? Performance matters. And as a 
you know, the, the venues in which I've performed my poetry include anti-war rallies. They include street corners. They include train platforms. Like I use my poetry as movement propaganda to challenge power and speak truth in the face of it. And I don't just do that alone. I've organized poets. Uh, I co-founded the Stanford Spoken Word Collective, which for the last 17 years has been churning out brilliant, visionary, creative voices that have been speaking truth to power. And it's frankly co-founding that club and the two other artist collectives, which I'll describe as some of my proudest work as a community organizer. I also, in the summer of 2003, just a few months after the uh, invasion of Iraq, I founded a uh, poetry convergence with three other poets in San Francisco at the corner of 16th and Mission. Uh, it's a transit hub and a major intersection of the Mission. And for the last 17 years, any Thursday night, there's been a convergence of poets and musicians there. It's unamplified. It's anarchic. It's outdoors. It was proto-Occupy-esque, you know, very much in the spirit of the Occupy movement. A decade before it emerged, we were uh, occupying, claiming public space ephemerally, not like camping, but just to, to share performance, but importantly, politically infused performance. And when I moved to Washington, D.C. Uh, in 2003, I co-founded the D.C. Guerrilla Poetry Insurgency, a group that occupied public space. We would promote uh, anti-globalization and anti-war mobilizations. That group also, all three of those communities are still active to this day. And I'm very proud of helping develop other people's voices and the importance of creativity in a time like this, as we are attempting to break the mold of calcified power structures and breathe into being a new paradigm to, to, to develop the new in the shell of the old requires creativity. It requires vision. It requires the ability to bring into being things that before didn't exist. And I'd say that's reflected, you know, not just in my art, but also in my politics, like, you know, being an advocate for marriage equality in 2004, like we saw opportunities to expand human rights at a time when, frankly, human rights have been eroding dramatically. I think any progressive would say that one of the few areas that we've gained ground in the last generation are LGBT rights. And I'm very proud to have played an early role in that movement. And I think it reflects the same sensibility that drove me to organize artists across the country for the last 20 years at the same time that I've been filing court cases at the same time that I've been lobbying Congress at the same time that I've been committing acts of journalism to get me arrested in the Senate and leading nonprofits and everything else. Um, just as long as you're raising the art, the other thing I'd say in terms of the valence or relevance of it to the election and DJing in particular, you know, one of the communities where I've uh, spent a lot of time playing music and one of the communities that frankly has been really influential for me and inspiring me is the set of countercultures that comprise and are inspired by Burning Man and the surrounding networks. And the first time I went to Burning Man was 2003. It was the summer that I just graduated from law school. Uh, I'd been getting arrested, trying to stop the wars. I was about to go to D.C. and uh, begin a litigation career that included the marriage equality case, which we filed a year later. And the chance to be among a bunch of inspired people <clears throat> in a space where literally everything was built within a course of weeks and then burned to the ground within a matter of days, you know, the, ex the experience of ephemeral community, uh, and the limitless possibility, uh, demonstrated by the kinds of creativity you see there, the art installations, the music, the, even just the communities that come together and the interpersonal connections. And it's an incredibly inspiring, uh, powerful place. And I have a lot of friends who there were there right now as we speak. Um, and you know, I, I bid them well, I hope that they're, uh, enjoying their celebration. It's a hard time for me to celebrate right now because I see so many crises. My alarm is a little bit too high for me to experience a 
celebratory escape at the moment. But I will just say that having even in that space at Burning Man, you know, people, a lot of people think it's a strictly recreational space. I've performed for large crowds there, you know, as large as like 5,000 in each year. I perform at least for hundreds in the camp that I've been a part of for the last uh, five or six years. And in those spaces, I'm not just playing music. You know, I, I rhyme live over my DJ sets and I'm rhyming about the climate crisis. I'm rhyming about police violence. I'm rhyming about war and human rights. I take our politics into our countercultural recreational spaces. And I often talk about the power of remixing, not just house tracks, but revolution and recreation. When our recreation is revolutionary, that's how we win. And I'll say that, you know, for me, one of my, uh, I don't know about proudest, but certainly favorite memories is last November, I had a chance to DJ an hour and a half long set at the base of the Washington Monument across the street from the kleptocrats house with hundreds of people around me. And the DJ set started with samples uh, of Malcolm X and Asada Shakur, and it was revolution from you know start to finish. And you know, using music to inspire, using music to inform, and using music to connect audiences both to each other and to a broader movement—that is something that is meta-political. It's socio-cultural. It is a force more powerful. And I think one reason why my voice resonates so much with our city is not only that as a as a political figure, my work is aligned with our city's values, but as an artist, I'm also aligned with our city's character. I came to the Bay Area from Chicago in 1999 because I was inspired by the countercultural legacy of this community, by the beat poets in the 50s and by the hippies in the 60s and by the punks in the 70s and the LGBTQ crowd in the 80s and the burners in the 90s. You know, we have long had a proud uh, countercultural leadership of our country based here in San Francisco. And I, am, I aim to represent both San Francisco's visionary politics and our proud legacy of, of countercultures. You know, I've heard a lot of politicians over the years, actually, even in my inbox this morning, talk about bringing the country together. And I've always when I when I hear a notion of that, I always just kind of uh, laugh or smile. And I think to myself, well, OK, how are you going to do that? You might be the first politician I've heard Talk about unity in 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 uh, a broad sense, and then just describe something that's so, totally tangible and, and viable to see. And I actually think that uh, your 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 spoken word performances uh, over your DJ sets are there's just so much power in that. Just and it, it you're right to uh, evoke counterculture, the beat generation. Just this is stuff. This isn't new stuff. People have been doing this for decades and. The successful Centuries politicians are the, right, millennia. Yeah, I mean, even. yeah, go on, please. Right, Ben Ben Johnson and Shakespeare. There's Parliament. Uh, they would send each other uh, little joke poems uh, in the British Parliament back in the 1600s. So yeah, okay. you're totally right. Um, it 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 takes a kind of politician. Uh, who who understands that and wields that to bring about real change? It, Shad, it's been so fascinating just to hear all of your uh your history your vision uh, you really are the kind of uh politician we need to to bring about this change and to send the message straight to the the core of uh house leadership and say you know the legislative branch stands for more than uh how you've wielded it and it's time it's time to change that uh, i've i've been so uh it's been such a pleasure to have you um, do you want to just tell us uh, thank you. Do you want to just tell us a little bit where your uh, campaign is headed in the yeah in the near future? Yeah, and how totally. people can get involved. 
Yeah, I appreciate that. The only thing I'd push back, and I appreciate your reflection, I just say I, I wouldn't say I or any politician is what we need. Uh, you know, I'm just a reflection of a movement, and it's I came out of a movement, and like any one seeking political office, you know, we aim not only to represent, but we will need those movements to back us. And, and it's not me that we need. I would say it's us. And, and I reflect, and I take some leadership from Bernie there. I, I think not me, us is a really important principle beyond a hashtag, beyond a chant to recognize the yeah. collective power and how we are stronger together than we are alone. And that, in a deep way, is, is the essence of socialism in the face of our atomized capitalist uh, runaway extraction machine. But uh, in the next several months, we're going to be continuing to escalate our campaign, uh, having gotten signs up in stores around the city and having uh, canvassed at events around the city and gatherings around the city. We're going to be moving into deep canvassing, knocking on doors and lit drops. We're going to be uh, putting out a number of materials to reflect our growing endorsements, which include three of Bernie Sanders' surrogates, Linda Sarsour, Dr. Cornell West, and Sean King, uh, which include the founder of Code Pink, Medea Benjamin, former president of our board of supervisors, Matt Gonzalez, and his one-time colleague, Eric Marr. Um, we're going to be inviting people to uh, nearly daily mobilizations and folks can plug in. If you want to help build uh, Brighter Tomorrow, wherever in the country you might live, we can invite your support. Even if you're not on the ground in San Francisco, remote teams are helping us with everything from graphic design to data entry, uh, website administration, supporting the campaign on each of the major social media networks. There's uh, coordinating private events, both here in San Francisco, but we have others coming up in Southern California, in Northern Texas, in DC, in New York, in Chicago. Uh, you know, we plan to uh, remotely participate in gatherings around the country, Seattle as well, I should mention. Um, and folks can plug in on any of the major social media platforms Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Shahid for Change, or on the web at Shahid for Change. And we welcome your support. We welcome your help. I will say we will need it. I am challenging a behemoth. Uh, and, uh, I'm not a property person. You know, I'm an immigrant whose family lost our house when I was 16. Um, so I, the only reason I'm in a position to even mount this campaign is because nearly 5,000 people across the country are already, uh, supporting us. And I'm very grateful for their support. I'm very eager to invite uh, anyone else who might be listening to join us and, uh, appreciate you giving us the chance to share a little bit about the campaign. Well, Thank you so much, Shahid, again, for coming on. It's it's always a pleasure, especially just to hear somebody speak uh, so fluently about LGBTQ topics. I know we have a, a large percentage of our audience, well, naturally, given the, the title of the show. But uh, it's been such a pleasure. We really love having progressive candidates on to talk about their message and uh, ways that we can get excited. And I think the best kind of political campaigns are the ones that... Uh, Fill people with hope for the future. And your campaign is one that I certainly uh, will be following with great interest. I urge people to uh, follow you along, uh, give support in any way they can. It's great that um, there are ways to get involved from a remote standpoint, especially just since the person you're challenging controls uh, so much power in, in D.C. It's uh, good for the country to have an opportunity to uh, give her uh, a little bit of feedback and uh, hopefully, <laughs> hopefully uh, through through support of uh, your campaign. So it's been it's been such a pleasure, Shahid, and uh, to everybody listening. Uh, thank you so much, and we'll see you next time. 